If you have your Bible this morning, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Over the last few weeks, uh, almost half of the world turned their television to uh, watch something that the majority of us really as Americans don't care all that much about. Last Sunday, the 2018 World Cup concluded with France as the victors, uh, with over 3.2 billion people having watched at least some portion of the tournament. When I heard that number, I was absolutely astounded. That's 3.2 billion people is 46% of the world's entire population. Nearly half of every human on the planet, half of humanity watched grown men kick around a black and white ball for 90 minutes at a time. And after much speculation as to why this is, I came to what can be uh, only the, the only right conclusion as to why so many uh, would tune in and, and why this tournament would garner the attention of so many. And I can only come to understand that it's because soccer fans are crazy. I, I say this in, in the nicest sense of the word, uh, but soccer or football, as it's known in most of the world everywhere except here, uh, I think more than any other sport captures the attention of its fans, the stage, because of the extreme dedication of its fan base. I mean, you see in soccer these guys painted in their national colors, waving their flags, blowing horns, swinging their shirts above their heads. You see grown men holding each other and sobbing uh, when their teams lose and are, are eliminated. And why? Because when you're a soccer fan, or maybe really any sports fan, uh, that's your team. And you feel as much as a part of the team watching it as you do as if you were the guy scoring the goals himself. Uh, that's why when people ha have their favorite sports teams, they'll, after a game, say, oh man, we, we really blew it. Or, or we played great today. To which I always want to say, oh really, we did? Was that before or after you dropped nacho cheese all down the front of your shirt? Uh, you know, there's this sense of, of we when it comes to a team. But sometimes I think uh, we can view church as a spectator sport. Something that we can sit on the sidelines or in the bleachers and feel like we're a part of the team, even though we've never really truly been involved. Sometimes it's easier to be a consumer than it is to be a contributor. On the other hand, though, uh, there are many in the church, or many that think about the church, like Americans do about soccer. There's a few of us that are uh, dedicated, involved, and active in it, but some of us, most of us, in large part, are content really just to uh, involve ourselves with other things. This morning we continue uh, our series that we've been going through this summer, Christian Atheists, with this idea of uh, when you believe in God, but live as if he doesn't exist. And this morning I want to look specifically at a topic that I've been looking forward to uh, as we've been going through this story, I've been looking forward to getting to this week, uh, when you believe in God, but not in his church. Now I know there's... Uh, irony behind this topic, probably the most ironic topic we've covered so far, because if you don't believe in the work of the church, you wouldn't be here this morning to hear me talk about those who don't believe in the work of the church. And so I get that, but pushing that aside for a minute, I think that we can all agree that the church can be a hard place. The church can be a messy place. I mean, the series we did just before this was called Messy, looking at uh, the letter to the, to the Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote about this messy church. The church can be a messy place. It can be an imperfect place. 
Even the most faithful of churchgoers have at some point felt the pain and pressures of church life. Certainly it's something I feel uh, as a minister, and, and I love ministry. I feel called to it, and there's nothing that I can see me doing with uh, the, the rest of my life. I can't imagine dedicating my life to any other thing. But that's not to say that some days it wouldn't be easier just to walk away. And so I want to begin uh, unpacking this issue of when you believe in God but not in His church by asking maybe the most obvious question, why should we believe in the church? And why does the church even exist? If you were to ask most churchgoers, 81% in fact, would say that the church exists to meet the needs of me and my family. Eight out of ten Christians say the church exists for me. But we see in Scripture something else. We see that the church doesn't exist to meet our needs. The church exists to be the hands and feet of Jesus and the world. That's not to say that the church isn't uh, meeting the needs of its people. But that's not our primary purpose. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul uh, calls the church the household of God. He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The, the church, among other things, stands for grace and truth in the world as the pillar of what God planned uh, to be the messengers of his salvation. Erwin McManus, a, a pastor and author, says, The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. And so should we get in our heads that the church exists to meet primarily our needs, we're already starting off on the wrong foot. But that's not to say that the church isn't important for our spiritual lives. Because the church is meant for as a place of connection. I heard it said this way, when you become a Christian, you don't just receive forgiveness, you receive a family. We come to church to connect to God and worship, but we also come to be connected together. The church is meant to be like a big bucket of Legos. I've talked before uh, in sermons about my love for Legos as a kid, my, my affinity for these little colored bricks. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a toy that kids enjoyed more throughout the years than these little studded blocks. I still have rubber, Rubbermaid tubs at home full of all kinds of different sets, you know, police Legos and pirate Legos and cowboy Legos and dinosaur Legos and, of course, Spider-Man Legos. Uh, but you, all of these things, these Legos, are pointless if you only have one brick. You see, uh, uh, you can't play with Legos one at a time. Legos were meant to be connected. I mean, that's the whole point. The purpose of a Lego brick is to be combined with other Lego bricks to build something amazing. A Lego brick on its own can never fulfill its purpose. And I think the same is said of the Christian and the church, that we are made to be connected. A solitary Christian can never fulfill his or her real purpose. And this isn't just like preacher speak, something that sounds good and is meant to motivate. This is something that has been shown scientifically to be literally and physically true, that we were meant to be and made to be connected. There was a Harvard study several years back of uh, 7,000 individuals looking at uh, how they uh, lived and their connectedness in life. And what they found through studying these people is that uh, those who lived in isolation over a prolonged period of time were three times more likely uh, to die early than those living in relationship. 
And what's really astounding to me about this study is not just that those uh, living in isolation uh, died quicker. That, I think, is to be expected in some sense. But what's even more amazing to me is that those with bad health habits, uh, maybe smoking or eating poorly or alcohol use, uh, or, or those you know, living uh, in some kind of unhealthy environment, but those who did that but still had strong relational connection lived significantly longer than those with great health habits living in isolation. And so, among other things, what that tells me is that you're better off eating Twinkies with good friends than eating broccoli alone. So, uh, if you take nothing else, remember that. Uh, but we, we just can't flourish on our own. Uh, a churchless Christian is like a spouseless marriage. It just doesn't make sense. If you remove an organ from the body, it might remain viable in a cooler for uh, mere hours at a time. But any longer, and it will die. But that being said, even though we were made to be connected, still there are all kinds of people who maybe love Jesus, but still aren't that fond of the church, maybe even hate the church. We've all heard uh, the sayings, you know, I, I don't need to go to church to worship. I can connect to Jesus fishing at a lake or camping or in nature more than I can in a local congregation. Or even, I can be a better Christian without the church than I can with the church. And to be fair, these kinds of statements are not always the church's fault. Some people just have other priorities. For many, Sunday is just another rest day, a a catch-up day, maybe even another work day. But many have given up on the church uh, not because of their own insecurities or laziness, but because they've grown disillusioned, disappointed. And in large part, that's on us. I mean, we've all heard it. The church is full of, of hypocrites. There are too many Christians that don't act or live like Christians. Or, or maybe, you know, the church is always talking or asking for my money. The, the worship is too loud or the worship isn't contemporary enough. Or my favorite uh, as a preacher, I'm just not being fed. And so we see, among other things, books like Life After Church. Or quitting church. So you don't want to go to church anymore. Dear church, letters from a disillusioned generation. We see statistics like 80% of churches have either plateaued or are declining. And so for whatever reason, people have quit coming to church. Christians and non-Christians alike have grown discontented and disillusioned and disappointed with the church. And we've forgotten that we're meant to be connected. This problem is not a new phenomenon. It's one that's been happening for thousands of years. In fact, looking at our text this morning in Hebrews 10, we see a group of Christians contemplating leaving the church, Uh, but their reasoning might surprise us. It's not laziness or discontentment or disillusionment. In fact, it's fear. Uh, In many ways, it's fear of persecution. The author of Hebrews writes in 10, chapter 10, verse 32, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. 
You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. This author says in the the earlier days of the church, these Hebrew Christians, uh, they were on fire. They had come to find the fulfillment of their Jewish heritage being realized in Christ, that everything was pointing to Jesus, and they had endured the difficulty for his sake. They had stood together and, and suffered joyfully, but now they're wavering. They're considering turning back. They're considering throwing in the towel. And it's in the face of this difficulty that God speaks this truth into their lives, into our lives as well. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We see in the face of these people who are considering quitting church, the encouragement to don't turn your back on the church. Don't give up meeting together. And so this morning, I want to offer you that same encouragement. Maybe you're here this morning tempted to throw in the towel. Maybe you're here this morning feeling a little disillusioned with the church. And if that's you, I want to open your eyes to two truths about the church. First, the church is majestic. The church is majestic. You, you might think that this is exaggeration or overstatement. I mean, majestic. Do, I mean, this doesn't look much like a kingdom. I mean, are we looking at the same thing here? Historically, the church has hardly attracted the real power players of the world. If you really want to attain any real power in this life, you become a politician or, or a celebrity or a lawyer or an internet superstar. You don't seek majesty in a grubby little building full of people looking for a crutch. But that's not how God sees the church. When God sees the church, he sees the mission worker of his kingdom. He sees his ambassadors. He sees the vehicle through which he has chosen to reveal his son, his rescue plan. Listen listen to the the words with which Paul describes the church in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and pointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells and fills everything in every way. God has placed Jesus as king over everything for the church. How many of us realize when we join together in this place, we do so as the incarnational representatives of the sovereign king of the universe? And you just thought you came to sing some songs and listen to a sermon. You see, the church is majestic because we are ambassadors of a king. The king who put the planets in place, whose creation extends far beyond what human eye has ever seen, has chosen you and me to be the messengers of his saving grace. Paul, again in Ephesians 3, says God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms. 
I like this word manifold that Paul uses. This word can mean many colored or multifaceted or multidimensional. It's as if he is saying the jewel of the gospel is presented to the majesty of the church. Never forget that what we do as the church is more than just getting together to sing some songs and listen to a sermon. We get together because the king who ruled before the world began has chosen to work through us. The church is majestic. But not only is the church majestic, the church, the church is mundane. I, I know you think you didn't hear me right, but yes, if we're being honest, sometimes the church can be a little plain. You would expect that if heaven's heart beat is for the church, then this is where all the important action would be. You would expect that if this was the most important thing in the world, that we should be next to spiritual superheroes. But instead, we find ourselves next to normal people, teachers and nurses, college kids, farmers, and retirees. We look around and think, if this is a place of majesty, we should be warriors. We expect Batman and Superman, but rather we get Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent. And it's not just the people that can be mundane, but the processes as well. You know, hymns and organs and communions and offerings, 30-minute sermon after 30-minute sermon, benedictions and invitations, shaking hands and going out to eat. And honestly, sometimes it all just gets a little mundane. Add in to that elders' meetings and board meetings and annual meetings and budgets and building projects, and we look around and we just think it looks a lot more mundane than it does majestic. But could it be that in all of the monotony, all of the mundane little things of church life, that God is doing something remarkable in us? I'm reminded uh, of that 80s classic movie, Karate Kid. Some of you might be familiar with it, but uh, if follows the story of a young kid, Daniel LaRusso, who is tired of getting beat up by bullies. And so he approaches his gardener, Mr. Miyagi, who he knows knows karate. And he begs for Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. And so Mr. Miyagi says, I'll do it. Uh, my job is to teach you karate, and your job is to listen to everything I say. And Daniel agrees, and so the next day they begin what is supposed to be his karate training, but instead... Uh, Mr. Miyagi instructs him to wash and wa wax the car. You know, wax on, wax off. I, I still wax my car like that. I can't help it. Uh, but still, no karate. And Mr. Miyagi is very particular about the motions. He does this thinking maybe he just has to pay his dues before he can be taught karate. And so the next day, Daniel comes, and it's not a car this time, but it's also not karate. Instead, it's sand the deck. Still no karate. The next day, paint the fence. The day after, paint the house. And finally, Daniel gets tired of it all. And he says, all you've done is make me your slave. All of these chores, you've not taught me any karate, I quit. And in his anger, Mr. in Daniel's anger, Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel, son, show me wax on. And, you know, Daniel does this kind of half-hearted motion. And Mr. Miyagi says, no, show me wax on. Wax off. And through all of these motions, wax on, wax off, so they're on the floor, paint the fence, paint the house, and he's just going crazy, and Daniel's blocking everything because in the mundane, 
he's been secretly, unaware, learning karate. And Mr. Miyagi tells him, come back tomorrow. You see, is it possible when we wonder how on earth the church could really be a magnificent part of a kingdom, that in all of the drudgery and monotony that we have been undergoing the secret apprenticeship, that we are learning spiritual things unaware, that when we teach Sunday school and shake hands and sit through sermons and sing like we mean it, in these times, these ordinary times, God is doing something within us to form us to look more like Jesus. There are those that say the church is lame or the church is embarrassing or the church is full of hypocrites and petty arguments. And yes, the church is decidedly imperfect. But the history books of heaven are written about the church. The world's history might be written about presidents and kings and political movers and shakers, but heaven history, heaven's history books are full of of pages of Sunday school teachers and small town preachers and people who lead worship and men who run board meetings and encouragers and prayer warriors and faithful attenders. Church work is the most important work in the world. Heaven's heartbeat is for the church. The pulse of God throbs for the church. So don't give up on the church. Let us consider how we might spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The church is majestic and the church is mundane, but most of all the church is his. For Jesus, the church was worth dying for. The God of the universe, the king over all creation, gave up his life not so that we might just go to church, but so that we could be the church. I want to close with these words uh, taken from this book, The Christian Atheist. I shared these on my Facebook page this week. I know that not all of you have Facebook, so I wanted to share them here as well. Craig Groeschel says, If you went to church and didn't like it, whether because you felt hurt or disillusioned or disappointed, then be the change you want to see. Even though the church is far from perfect, he says, mine sure is, think about how much better it could be if you would give your life to it. God is not calling us to go to church. He is calling us to be the church, the hope of the world. And that's the invitation that I want to extend to you this morning. The invitation not just to go to church, but to be the church, to be God's vehicle of salvation. That he has picked this majestic, mundane institution to, live, to deliver to the world the greatest news it could ever hear. Some of you uh, might have gone to church for a long time, but you've never really been involved. You've never really gotten plugged in in, in a way that contributes to the health of this body. And we're glad you're here, but we'd be even more overjoyed if you would truly become an active part, to be the church, to commit your life to it. For some of you, that might mean uh, making a decision to follow Jesus, the head of this church, the king of the church, for the very first time. So we want to extend that invitation to you this morning, but we also want to invite you to get plugged in 
to this majestic, mundane institution to give your life for it because Jesus gave his life for it. If that's a decision you'd like to make uh, this morning, I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about that. Would you please pray with me? Father, we are thankful for the church. God, I know that sometimes uh, just with the the pressures of ministry or uh, just the things that we all face as church members, it's easy uh, to grow discouraged or disillusioned and to say bad things about your bride. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, allow us to see the church the way that you see it. That though we are imperfect, we are yours. God, I pray that we would see the church as the majestic institution that it is. That it is more than just uh, songs and sermons, but we are ambassadors. We have been given a mission. And that we are subjects of a king. And God, I also pray that in the times that we recognize the church is mundane, and a little ordinary, and a little monotonous. That you would help us to realize that as we are faithful in that monotony, that we are learning and being shaped to look more like Jesus. And so God, I pray that, I, that we would not grow discouraged, that we would not give up the habit of meeting together, but rather be renewed and encouraged for the mission that you have given us as we work toward that mission together, not just going to church, but being the church. We pray these in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.